The piece is called Letter to Michael and the text comes from something which I came across quite by accident a few years ago. Um, I was looking on a website, uh, a blog called Letters of Note, which uh, is uh, a blog about interesting correspondences over the years. And one day, anyway, they had a, a post about a letter from an image of a letter from a woman named Emma Hauck, who was a German woman from around about 100 years ago. And the page was just almost completely black with a pencil written with the same word or a couple of words written over and over and over again maybe thousands of times on the one page so it's just a thick black column and you have to kind of decipher it's almost completely illegible and the story behind it was that she at that time had been interned at the University of Heidelberg Hospital as being a schizophrenic um, as she was diagnosed in those days so she was in there indefinitely and while she was there, she wrote these letters to her husband, Michael, begging him to come and visit her. And so she just wrote the word come, the German for to come, or komme, uh, over and over and over again. Or hetz and chatzi come, which is like uh, sweethearts come. Just the, the, the same phrase over and over and over again, a kind of uh, obsessive plea. And of course, you know, I found that quite moving and then also the kind of composer magpie part of me also thought hmm this could be have musical ramifications and also I think it fits in with some ideas that I have in a lot of my stuff recently is very dense and has got to do with this kind of uh, having individual lines in a group setting and how how those individual parts kind of mesh into one whole and what the role of the individual is in the ensemble so a lot of this kind of thing had this seemed like a perfect setting and then this opportunity came later to write the piece and I thought I'm going to use that text so the text is actually literally three words it's Herzenschatzi, Komm over and over and over and over again and um, Michael one of the things for me comes to dealing with the voice and setting words and singing is that there has to be a certain kind of emotional threshold that you break through in order to lapse into song. That's kind of the way I feel about it. And it has to, it's certain kind of extreme emotion of some kind. It doesn't have to be extremely violent or extremely, but there's a certain extremity involved for me in an the idea where the voice goes from speech as it is normally into into something sung this is taken out even you know regardless of ritualistic types of singing or traditional types of singing whatever. but this is one aspect of singing that really interests me and singing even you know a lot of my instrumental pieces over the last years there's also you know the singers the players have to sing as well and there's something about that that shows the kind of the individual characteristic of their voice uh, or them as a person so anyway getting back to the text of Emma Hauck that it's uh, it's so there's an intensity that you just you get it just it's there in the page I mean you look at it and it's it's the intensity of her feelings at that time and it's so pathetic in the real sense of the word that in a way that just gives me as a composer a kind of uh, a frame of reference whereby then because I need that kind of extremity in order to have 
people sing. So then it's, it was, uh, you know, making the leap then. Once I'd made that leap, in a way, I'd left that story behind, actually. So I don't find myself, while I'm composing it, thinking of Emma Hulk and how terrible it was for her all the time. And like, you know, with the tears running down my cheeks. It's very much becomes then a springboard for me for something, for my own musical argument. But definitely the kind of, the, the raw and kind of really intense uh, emotional threshold that's reached that she reaches by writing those words then it gives me the springboard to kind of to go from there so it's a starting point is that is that something that that's that's common to a lot of your pieces that you're taking an initial idea and then you're running with that and then it, it sort of it fades into the background but but the sentiment remains yeah, I think maybe it's it's a, to do. I guess that a lot of the time there might be a con a conceptual element to a work of mine, but in a way that's something. It's like a kernel that I can hold on to, so that when you're months into a composition and you're lost in a kind of mesh of notes, and you you you, you kind of think, where is the heart of this thing? That's when I I go back to that original kernel, and that's the thing that kind of it's like your little guiding light that keeps you going. Um, and if I don't have that, it's very difficult for me to start a piece without having that kind of... And it's usually, it needs to be something extreme for me to kind of... To, to make me metaphorically get up off my arse. It, or want it to kind of bring a piece, you know what I mean, into the world. That it's like, uh, it has to be something that provokes me. Yeah. Well, I've got a kind of secret choral past that I don't ever tell anyone about. Between when I finished studying undergraduate college of music in Dublin and before I went to Glasgow I had a year out and during that year I sang with a cantique and a couple of other choirs and I also did a few things and I, I kind of got this funny gig where I was kind of like a tenor bumper where uh, I would go into choirs for like a couple of weeks before their big thing because I was I was a tenor this is unusual I could read and I was really loud, shock, horror. So I could go in and I would come in, I'd basically like shout the tenor part and do it. And, so, and I kind of lived off that for, for the year or so. And then there was this thing that happened around the time of just after Riverdance, there was this whole thing, Faith of Our Fathers. And I sang and that, remember we went to like some funny tour of New Jersey and New York and all of that stuff. So, so this, I've got this funny, really particular period of time in my life just before, between when I'd finished studying in Ireland before I moved to Scotland, when I was like choir man. <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah, but and it's kind of stuck in that time. Never did it, never sang in another choir ever again. And then actually never even wrote for a choir again, apart from that short piece, Choirland. So in a way, revisiting this thing, it's funny because I'm not even sure if it's really a choir piece. It's, it's a piece for 16 voices. And I'm not sure if that's the same thing as writing a choral piece, maybe. It, it's very much 16 individual voices and kind of knowing that I would be able to write for the chamber choir. And, mm. and so I knew that I could do, there was certain, you know, I could write in that way in a very divided and individual kind of way. I'd started to, yeah, to have people sing in a lot of my instrumental pieces. I mean, in fact, in most of them, people end up singing in some regard, making noises or something that shows their individuality as a person out with the kind of normal praxis of their instrumental playing. And in a way then the voice became a really central thing. And so then I started to think about, you know, well actually writing for voices then uh, is a kind of logical next step. 
then there's always a problem of text. I mean, the first piece that I wrote for choir, this piece Aure, that they did in whenever it was, 1998, is also the last time I've set poetry. And I don't think I'll do it again. You know, that was a conscious decision not to set, not to set poetry. And Why? Well, finding to, because, I mean, really in a nutshell, I think that for me, poetry is already music. And that's, and that's it. And I can't. And also, I feel it's even the greater the poetry, the more beholden I seem to feel, and to the, you know, to the great writer setting it. And in a way, I want to be able to use them as, as I said, as a springboard for my own, for my own ideas. Never say never. There may be. I may come across something tomorrow, and I think that's just beautiful. Mm. I want to set it. Mm. In fact, that's entirely possible. And I think my views are in a bit flux anyway. In that. But that's how it has been anyway, up to yeah. now. And that's partially the reason as well that I, I, I haven't written. But then also, uh, I think that it has to be a particular set of circumstances. And this one writing for the chamber choir. And they have a certain level, you know, of... Uh, if You know, I, I, I knew that I could write this piece as is for SATB but it's the Visi in 16 parts it's 16 solo voices and I knew that I could do that for them and you know given the opportunity to drive a Ferrari you're not going to drive it at 30 miles an hour around the block you know you want to you want to open it out and um, and that's a bit how I felt right with the choir what I really wanted to do was to have this piece to be extraordinarily dense but then also to be able to be able to hear individual voices and that's kind of the challenge in terms of, of the writing, which was to keep the uh, integrity of the line. So actually, the soprano, alto, tenor and bass, they all sing within each section similar material, but in canons. Actually, they're, but they're canons with adjustments, let's say, but they start out as, as uh, technically canons. Um, so basically, all the sopranos sing in the same kind of material, all the basses sing in the same kind of material, but very different from each other in terms of sections, but within the section is similar. So the idea is that they have they share a kind of a material, but then they, they have their own individual line and way of expressing that line. If I was in some other place at some other time and I was talking about the ideas for this piece, you could imagine a really dense, chromatic, cluster uh, something like Ligeti looks at turn or something and that piece actually you know and I love that piece and that type of of piece um, so and that's one way in a way that's kind of the obvious way actually to do to, to use this subject matter is to, is to do it that way you know very and there are there is a cluster element but in a way I thought with this and actually the last piece that I wrote, uh, Hauptstimme, shares this as well. A piece I wrote for Gar Garth Knox and Red Note Ensemble is that, in a way, by making it actually not very interesting harmonically, if I can just for a moment go with that. So it it basically goes tonic dominant. If in terms of harmony, that's really what it's doing more or less. It goes tonic dominant, tonic dominant, tonic dominant, um, with lots of sliding in between. But that's basically what it did. I, I thought, you know, if it, somehow if we just take that as red, that's the harmony in the piece, okay, then you can put it over here and then you concentrate on what everyone's doing so that I'm not going to entertain you with my slates of hand, you know, my slate of hand harmonically and my clever shifting and modulating. And I was like, that's not what this piece is for. 
So you can kind of put it to one side and then that's just the sound of the piece. So then you're kind of, you're able to, it seems to me, I can get more quickly to dealing with sound, weirdly, by putting it in this world, which comes from a familiar place. So then you're not kind of worried or anxious. It just, that's just the, the space that it inhabits.